I often fantasize about running away and doing that big, life-changing journey. I once cycled the length of the country on a whim. I hitchhiked to Africa at 19 with the obligatory copy of On the Road in my backpack. And just last year, I spent weeks up in the most remote corners of Scotland updating the latest rough guide. But I always know that I'll be coming home, that I'll put a wash on, text my mates, and then get back to my day job. So why do some people take that to the extreme? They don't come back after summer, and they don't just cross the country, they carry on going, sometimes for years. Is it a way of escaping from something in your own life? Does it take a certain sort of character to go? Or maybe the journey is an end in itself? I'm Greg Dickinson, and I'm an editor at Rough Guides. I wanted to make this podcast as a home for all the juicy stuff we can't fit into our guidebooks. The sort of stories you tell when you get back from a trip, about when things don't go to plan and the characters you meet along the way. And I've been talking to all sorts of people, comedians, adventurers, writers. One guest who was proposed to by a camel herder. Another was locked up in a jail cell with two prostitutes in New York. Ruby Wax. And another who has travelled the entire world, in his words, collecting smiles. And in this first episode of The Rough Guide to Everywhere, I speak to two writers who have travelled huge lengths of the planet, 50 years apart, to try and understand what makes them tick. We've got round-the-world cyclist Charlie Walker and the legendary Irish travel writer and adventurer, Dervla Murphy. Hello, hello, can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Hello, Greg. Can you hear me, Dervla? I can, but you're quite faint. I'm quite faint. But that's probably partly because I'm going deaf. Dervla is best known for her book Full Tilt, about her overland cycle from Ireland to Delhi in the 1960s. But around that same time, she also visited what were then some of the most inaccessible places on the planet, like Ethiopia, Siberia, Rwanda, all on her own or with her young daughter, Rachel. Now, remember, this was before round-the-world flight tickets and gap years were a thing. To put it in perspective, she packed a revolver on her cycle to India. She's now 85 and Dervla is right up there amongst the godlike travel gurus like Paul Theroux, Hilary Bratt, Bill Bryson. And I caught up with her from the wilds of Ireland over the phone. Cheers, guys. Okay, Dervla, it's just me and you now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So, Dervla, what I'd like to speak to you about is your big adventure in 1963 where you cycled from Ireland to Delhi. Um, you knew from a very young age that you wanted to travel to India on a bicycle. So what instigated this dream? Well, I don't know, really, except that, you know, how one hears of talk of India. There are so many. Remember, this is um, 1941. India was still in the empire. There were still a lot of links. There were still a lot of people one knew. Uh, who had lived in India, and it just seemed a wonderful, um, mysterious, beautiful place. And then when when I was given a present of an atlas, and I realised that one could actually, apart from the few feet of water between Asia and uh, Europe, one could cycle all the way from home to India. And what was it about cycling that you loved so much? Oh, good, goodness knows. 
I mean, I always loved it. Have you always rathered cycling to, to walking yourself? Well, no, I mean, my, my main journeys actually have been on foot. But because of full tilt, uh, my first journey to India, uh, I've just associated, I mean, it's extraordinary to me, in, in, in the public mind with cycling rather than trekking. But my, you know, the, the treks I did in, um, in Baltistan, in Ethiopia, and Peru, Mexico, they, they were really the, the, the major journeys. See, that's the great thing about walking as compared to cycling, much as I love cycling. But walking, you don't need any sort of road or, or track, just a little path. That's true. I think a lot of people would agree with you about the exotic ideal of travelling overland yes. to India, but you actually went and did it. So what, what made you decide to finally just pack up your panniers and go? Well, um, you see, my, my circumstances as a youngster were, were very unusual. Obviously, it's something I would have done much sooner, but for the fact that my mother was an invalid and I had to look after her, there was nobody else to look after her. I mean, I never saw her walking or standing. She was, I was only six months old when she was completely invalided by rheumatoid arthritis. So it wasn't until her death, when I was 30, that I was free to travel very far beyond home. I did, of course, you know, um, often go for, had a month's holiday on the continent and cycled around during my 20s. But um, she died when I was 30, and and then I was off. So when you preparing for this trip I've, I read in full tilt that you you had a revolver yes so h- how did you obtain this gun well in those days you see we're not we're not talking about the age of terrorism <laughs> I walked into a shop in Dublin and bought it and I mean I would never have thought of buying it but various friends and relatives insisted that it might be a good idea and as it turned out, I suppose, there were quite a few instances where you did... Well, in a way, but on the other hand, when I got to Afghanistan, I sold it. I, was, I didn't really like carrying it, even though it was extremely useful on a couple of occasions. So I became an arms trader in Afghanistan. <laughs> um, and w- when you were doing this cycle on the way to Delhi, there, there were instances where you pretended to be a man. Is that right? Oh, yes, in, uh, particularly in Persia, because, um, well, you know, in certain areas of Persia, particularly in the east around Meshed, they were very conservative in their attitude to women. Yes. So it just seemed to make sense. Well, anyway, almost everywhere it was assumed that I was a man. <laughs> I, I would think quite a few women uh, found it more convenient in some countries to um, just to let it be assumed, as in those days it usually would be assumed. There weren't that many women wandering around on their own. Mm. 
And what are the main differences between travelling as a man or as a woman? Well, I think in remote areas you're much safer as a woman. I think you're more likely to be suspected of spying for somebody or being in some way up to no good if you're a man. Yeah, and I remember when in, in the book Full Tilt you talk about crossing one of the borders with your gun in, in, your, in your pack. And, yes. And the, if they had found that, I mean, you would have been locked up and it would have, start, it would have instigated some kind of... It diff- would have been awkward, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it would have been more than awkward. It might have been, yes. <laughs> While you were doing this travel, a lot of people must have told you how brave you are and how courageous it is to, to do a trip like this. But that seems to be something... Which, that, of course, is absolute nonsense. Yeah, so why do you reject this idea that it takes... Well, I mean, it is absurd, you know. In what way? I mean, it's just something you want to do, and you do it. You don't have to be... I mean, you think the whole world was inhabited by wild animals. But you did get attacked by wolves, and you had to shoot one of them in the head. Well, that was very exceptional, that particular (laughs) winter. Now that the century is over, we know that that was the coldest winter in the 20th century. Yes, yeah, that's true. But I think a lot of people would still say that it takes it takes some some degree of courage to deal with the sort of circumstances that you found yourself facing. Oh, well, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I won't insist. I won't insist. <laughs> so, Devlin, you talk about real travel. What exactly, what exactly do you mean by this? Well, I suppose what I mean by it is as far away as possible from motor roads and cosmopolitan urban life, if you see what I mean. Mm. But I, I think it's, I mean, it makes me rather sad when I look at my three grandchildren because there are so many places where I enjoyed my long treks, which were completely free of motor roads and now are infested by them. Yeah. So I suppose my, my um, idea of real travel is Probably not even repeatable by now. We're going to talk to another, a young guy who's done a similar sort of cycle around the world. He's called Charlie Walker. And oh, yes, I've read about him. Have you? So his trip was, he cycled from London and then he went to the North Cape of Norway and then he went down to Singapore. That's and, right, yeah. yeah. So he probably covered quite a lot of similar ground as yourself. But it was interesting chatting to him because I asked him what it was like day after day, getting back on the bike and not really doing it for any reason other than the love of being on a bicycle and for exploring the world. Did you ever find that sense of pointlessness as you were cycling? No, never. But there must have been points where you wanted to give up. No, I never wanted to give up. I don't think if you, you know, if you've longed for years to do a journey like that, and then at last you're free to do it. I don't think anybody would be tempted to give up. So what did you? What do you consider to be the purpose of a trip like that? Or is it kind of an end in itself? Well, I just enjoy myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever been? Have you ever been tempted just to book yourself on an all-inclusive traveller? Oh, I hate hotels. Hate them. I mean, even when I'm invited to these literary festivals or whatever. I um, I asked to be put in a B and B. I detest hotels. 
Um, so I suppose your your child, Rachel, went through a similar thing when she was growing up, rather than going to these package holidays. You took her along on your travels, is that right? Yeah, yes. No, she was wonderful. Where, where would you take her as a, as a young child? Well, the first time, uh, I, I thought, you know, for the first five years I wouldn't travel outside of Europe and let her be rooted there. And so... She had her fifth birthday in South India, in, in Cork. And then I came home and wrote that book. And then um, she had her sixth birthday on the way to Balstad. And there she had um, a retired polo pony, which she rode while I walked. Then where was the next one we did together? Madagascar. No, sorry, Peru, when she was nine. She walked 1,600 miles as a nine-year-old. Oh, my gosh. And some, something that you, you've been quoted to say is a child's presence emphasises your trust in the community's goodwill. What, what, yes. What, what do you mean by this? Well, I mean, um, if you are taking your small-ish child with you, you clearly you trust the local people. Yeah. So you've and you've been travelling with your grandchildren as well. The trio is that right? That's right, Cuba. <laughs> yes. I've heard about the trio. Yeah, to Cuba. So you went in. Was it two thousand five, two thousand six, and two thousand seven? Yes, that's right. What was it that kept bringing you back to Cuba? Oh, I thought I just feel we had so much to learn from Fidel. It would not suit me to be a Cuban citizen. But on the other hand, the majority of human beings do not want to write and travel in the sense I do. What they do want is to be adequately clothed and housed and fed and educated and entertained and given the opportunity for the sport or the artistic endeavour that the talents dispose them to. And all those things were secure in Cuba. And the fact that it looked poor because it was a non-capitalist, advertisement-free country, you know, it, it hugely impressed me. I mean, that's why I went back three times and why I wrote one of my longest books. But I think the United States from the beginning panicked because you can have, and everybody who visited Cuba remarked on the fact that the, the extremely low crime rate, people were polite, looked happy. A society that is not ruled as ours is by now, entirely by profit. Yeah, and uh, so, so it sounds like you're actually, in a way, you're an, a kind of an advocate of Fidel, of, of Castroism. Absolutely. How did you feel when he passed away? Oh, well, I mean, he was 90. What I felt was I would have preferred him to die 10 years sooner before capitalism began to encroach. I think it depends on how soon the, the collapse of capitalism actually happens more visibly. It's happening already, but... Mm. When it's more evident, I think the Cubans may realise how lucky they were. 
And the fact when I went, I, what I noticed was the family unit was so strong. Mm. You'll go to a village, and I remember we stayed at a family's house, and the son and his wife were building their apartment on top of his parents' house. And, you know, they'd be eating very basic food. It'd be like rice and chicken every night, pretty much. Maybe a tub of and mayonnaise. And pork, yeah. And pork, yeah. The, I mean, the I food... mean, absolutely, you know, when you were eating at the everyday level of the Cuba, it was pretty gloomy diet. Yeah, and that was actually the thing that I took back from Cuba, was it's such a myth the idea of Cuban food being delicious and spicy and exotic oh, yeah. is complete exactly. tosh because yeah. it is rice, maybe a goat's head, possibly a bit of pork. And great chunks of pork fat. Yes. Did you come across that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other question I wanted to ask you is you've travelled extensively across the planet. Are there any places where you would love to go to still? Oh, there are. Um, well, I would like to revisit Kurg in South India. I believe that is one of the places not to change since I was there all those years ago. And what is it about that place that you love so much? Oh, it's, it's absolutely such a beautiful, serene corner of India. And wonderful people, the Kurgis. So if you were to update a rough guide to anywhere in the world, it would be to Cork? Yes. Deal. OK, right. So we're going to send you on the... If that's OK, Devlin, we'll send you on the road in the next couple of years to, right. to update that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so lovely speaking to you. Thank you for your time. And I've enjoyed this. Thank you. I think I can safely say that Dervla Murphy is the only person in the world who would shrug off getting attacked by wolves and shooting one in the head. What an absolute hero. Now, I read about my next guest, Charlie Walker, on a tabloid newspaper's website. Pictures of him looking all mysterious and bearded next to this battered bicycle. He's a 20-something-year-old guy who went on a four-year cycle across 61 countries. And after chatting with Dervla, I wanted to see if her and Charlie were like spiritual cycling soulmates separated by half a century, or if people can have completely different motivations for saying, right, I'm off. I got uh, lost in a blizzard up on the plateau in Tibet. Um, I was in Tibet during the winter, which was foolish. I didn't have a permit to visit Tibet, so I, I managed to sneak in and, at the night time by cutting a hole through a fence of a Chinese military base uh, and there were various blizzards particularly at higher altitudes while I was crossing the plateau and um, in one of them I lost uh, it, it got worse and worse to the point where it was a complete whiteout and I'd lost track of the the path I was following uh, the, there were some sort of piles of earth and telegraph poles alongside the road and those had completely disappeared and so the ground was white the sky was white I couldn't distinguish between the ground and the sky it was like being in a sort of a loud windy purgatory and uh, I was pushing, you know, through, trudging through um, shin-deep snow, and my feet had gone completely numb to the point where I felt like I was just walking on my ankles, and my hands were going a similar sort of way, and that was the first time in my life where I really genuinely thought that could be it, I might die here. Um, and I, I probably did despair for, for a couple of minutes before I realised there was no point, no one was going to come and help me, I was in the middle of nowhere, and if I... If I didn't keep a level head, then I'd probably be found when the spring came, and that would be that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, 
asked myself, you know, I tried to be rational. I asked myself, how much longer could, do I think I can keep walking uh, in this way, getting this cold? And I gave myself 15 minutes and I said, all right, if, if I'll keep struggling on for 15 minutes. And if I find nowhere to shelter by then, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, you know, with my frozen clawed mitts, I'll, I'll scoop a hole in the snow, get in my sleeping bags, try and bury myself in to insulate myself. And hopefully, you know, wait out the storm. And when morning comes, I'll be, I'll be, you know, still there. Uh, thankfully, after just under 15 minutes, after I think it was about 12 minutes, uh, I was checking my watch frantically every sort of few seconds. Yeah. Uh, about 12 minutes later, I, I sort of noticed a, a, a vague uh, grey shape ahead. Uh, so I abandoned my bike, walked up to it, and it was a very tiny hut, just about sort of four by four metres. And I pushed open the door and sort of swept in in a flurry of snow. Um, and there was a small Tibetan family inside who all backed away, pretty terrified. Yeah. Um, for them, I was effectively the yeti of their folklore. <laughs> I had two icicles of snot hanging out my moustache. I, <laughs> yeah. I was bearded and wild-eyed and too cold to talk. So I just sat by their fire for about an hour before uh, introducing myself, and they, they they let me stay for the night. And uh, thankfully, I was all right. Bit of very light bit of frost nip, but really nothing else. So I was very lucky. <laughs> so you were 22 when you set off. Is that right? Correct. Who were you when you when you left? Uh, I was quite a hubristic young travel journalist uh, i've been working on a on a national paper on the travel section for a while uh, not for that long i was relatively recently out of university and i think i was just a bit bored of not necessarily of work but just of everything and so slightly uh uh foolhardily threw myself into this into this trip do you have to have a screw loose or does there need to be something about you that means that you will actually go off. I'm probably not that impartial to answer this question, <laughs> to be fair. But uh, I mean, I'm not really sure. When I when I decided to do it, I don't think I really considered what it was. And I'd undertaken a couple of small little sort of trips before during summer holidays when I was a university student. And I'd always quite enjoyed the the slight sort of veneer of, you know, rugged adventurer that that would endow me with when I got back. And I mean, truth be told, I I think on some level, I thought this long trip would would help me uh, attract girls more. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Turns out not showering for the best part of four years doesn't work in that respect. It's pretty counterproductive. Um, and it was it was probably a few months into the trip, or at least a good couple of months into the trip, when I first realised what it is I had undertaken, and that's when the sort of the the challenge really started to make itself clear to me. Um, but by then I'd already committed, and I'm quite stubborn and also embarrassed quite easily. So by that point I just kind of had to carry on because there would have been nothing worse than getting as far as, you know, Mannheim and having to turn around and go back because I'd, you know, lost confidence or something. I, I really didn't. There was very little preparation. There was very little planning or research. Um, so there were certain, that, I mean, that didn't serve me that well. But at the same time, heading out with a completely sort of blank slate and just the very sort of vague uh, goal that I'd, or framework of, of a journey that I'd set myself was quite liberating. And it meant that, you know, I was, forced to and able to think on my feet every time that some obstacle you know fell in my way so are you the kind of traveler who go who print who has a printed map rather than using your phone and using gps to navigate around um yeah i didn't have a phone for the majority of this trip oh, right. certainly not a smartphone um and very often i didn't even have maps i had uh you know bullet point directions from um you know google maps that i copied down in the lost city so it would say turn left at the traffic lights um, continue 400 yards, turn right at the roundabout, continue 300 kilometers um, at the next town, turn left-ish. Uh, you know, it was all very vague. When I could get hold of decent maps, I would. 
Um, but that got increasingly hard the further I got from from Europe or Western Europe even. Yeah. Did you always know that it was going to be around four years? Did you have an idea in your mind of how I, long you wanted to be away for? I reckon it would be four. And that the way I got to that number was by, although I didn't have a specific route planned, uh, I, I, I looked at it and I thought conservatively perhaps I would be able to cycle uh, the the length of the UK each month repeatedly month on month regardless of terrain or weather or whatever so I uh, I planted my thumb over that and the width of my thumb was the same as the length of the UK <laughs> okay. so I then thumbprinted my way around the world uh, you know from home to the top of Europe to the bottom of Asia to the bottom of Africa and back home and it came to exactly 48 Actually, as that was my scientific way of saying right 48 months mum dad I'm off for four years and how did they respond when you told them uh, they didn't take it entirely seriously, but very quickly when they realized I was serious, they were very, uh, apprehensive of course, but, but very supportive. God, those weeks where you were just on your own, what was it like psychologically? Did you, did at any point you feel like you were kind of going mad or did you ever get completely kind of swallowed up in your own thought? Uh, completely. Um, increasingly I discovered um, podcasting and would listen to a lot of podcasts as I cycled. That was a good way to sort of distract myself when I could get some, you know, some charge on my iPod. But uh, yeah, I mean, the the worst was was not talking for a long time, not even communicating in a, in a foreign language or even sort of, you know, gesticular uh, sign language. Um, so, I mean... Tibet springs to mind, uh, mm. spending, you know, I think at one point I didn't really see anyone or, or utter words for, for the best part of a week. And in that time, you do, yeah, you do start to ruminate and you do, your thoughts get a bit uh, cyclical and you realise that you're just, it's like screaming into an echo chamber because every time you, you have some idea, you consider it and then it just pings straight back off the back of your skull to you and you have no no sort of sounding board with its own subjective uh, response so you, you can get very carried away thinking things because you convince yourself uh, you know you, you you pose a question to yourself and you answer the question with the answer that you obviously were expecting because it's you <laughs> uh, and you, you build this sort of slightly mad dialogue with yourself which is of course just a you know a completely you know batty soliloquy uh, I, I suppose it, it does pass the time because, you know, eventually you realise you're being a fool, but at least, you know, another 14 miles have passed and uh, yeah. and it's time to throw your tent up. So was that in Tibet, did you say? That was probably the worst because uh, the, the the cold mm. uh, compounded the, the sort of the loneliness and the slight sense of, of madness. Um, but there were there were a lot of, you know, desert times. I think that just at the very end, in fact, crossing the Sahara uh, on the way back up through Africa. So I crossed it once on the way down the east and on the way back up the west, uh, I was crossing it. I knew I knew this was going to happen for the whole time I was in Southern Africa. I knew that I was going to be faced with a ferocious headwind for the entire way crossing northward because there is a northerly wind, the, the Sirocco, I think it's called, that that blows across the Sahara year-round, day and night. Uh, and so on the way back up, it was, you know, you'd cycle at walking pace on flat ground, um, which is incredibly frustrating. Uh, and so I started cycling at night. Um, and for, for a couple of weeks, uh, I just cycled nocturnally and in daytime, I'd try and find any sort of shelter, shade to sort of, you know, often road signs right next to the road mm. to sort of sleep next to. Um, and that was a very isolating existence, you know, just following a sort of a, the, the vague trace in the moonlight of a dotted white line. Uh, thankfully, on a smooth tarmac road, yeah. <laughs> had it been a bumpy path, that would have been a different matter. 
we've spoken quite a lot. Yeah, we've spoken about some of the negative aspects of doing a trip like this. And yet you are now you're about to embark on a nine month trip again. Wh why are you going back to it? Um, I although I, you know, I look back and a lot of it seems like real hardship. I, I love it and I do. I do miss it. And I think when you're doing something of that nature, you know, even something relatively sort of short, I think uh, you have so much time to to sort of get your your mental house in order and to sort of, you know, sort your thoughts out. And you come up with all these great uh, almost resolutions. You know, when I get back, I will do this each week and I will, you know, keep a diary permanently and I'll continue to read a book a week and I will, you know, sketch more often. And you have all these, you get into all these great habits while you're away because you have that, that you know, that wealth of time to play with. Uh, and you get back and you get back with this fresh burst of energy and then very gradually and it's insidious you don't notice it but all these sort of ideas just fade away as you get sort of reattached to and re-involved with both the good and bad parts of living in a the modern world but be in a large city where you've got friends and family and whatever else um and so i suppose to refresh that once in a while uh is no bad thing i realize i completely dodged that question because that's talking about <laughs> why it's bad to come back which doesn't really make sense <laughs> um but but on top of that the the challenge, I think, is, is I mean, it's almost enough anyway. So out of all the countries that you went to, is there one, did you have a favourite country? Uh, Mongolia and Iran. I give two. Um, Mongolia, because I think it's one of the most sort of beautiful places that's so ripe for adventure. I mean, the, the country is the size of Spain, France and Germany combined. And the population is, you know, about a third that of London. Uh, and there's no fences. It's one huge national park. It's all common land. The nomads roam around and you can do exactly the same um and iran i think because it's and it remains i've visited i think 80 90 countries now and iran is still far and away the friendliest mm. uh, despite the fact that i was evicted from there a week ago today <laughs> i was yeah my uh, my visa extension was denied and i was given 12 hours to leave the country wow why um, was your visa extension denied uh whim i think they're quite <laughs> uh they're quite capricious when it comes to visa extensions uh, apparently, a uh, <laughs> uh, Tehran is the nose job capital of the world, and um, and it's big for plastic surgery. Uh, also, the the um, per capita use of cosmetics is the highest in the world in Iran. Anyway, a Western porn star recently went to Tehran to get a nose job, and um, it became a big, a big story in in certain circles of media. And the uh, the Iranian authorities have got slightly. Uh, um, burnt by that experience perhaps and they're now being because I think she had to stay a little longer to you know fully recover before she went back right uh, and so now they're just a little more weary about uh, wary about um, tourists staying longer than a month so do you say you went to 80 or 90 you've been to 80 or 90 countries in, in my life I think I don't I don't have a count but that's do you, do you find that the in ref, I guess in hindsight and in reflection looking at all of those countries do you see more differences between them or more similarities? Uh, that's a really difficult one. No one's ever asked me that before. Mm. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it's a really tricky question. I I see differences between the countries um, and differences between the sort of the enactment of humanity in the countries, but perhaps similarities between just the people and the human traits. Uh, and those boil down just to simply how people try to survive, how people act towards and look after each other. And this is in general because, of course, there are differences. 
Um, but I, I couldn't say one or the other. I think it really is both. Mm. The countries are all the, the the sort of the outlet of culture, the 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 color, the detail of of you know the look, the texture, the sense of different countries. You know how you go to well, let's stick with Mongolia. You go to the capital Ulaanbaatar, and it's it's this funny mixture of relatively modern buildings um, surrounding a core of Stalinist concrete apartment blocks. Uh, surrounded by this this sort of periphery of uh, nomadic tents, which are just slowly gathering around the city. Um, so that looks, of course, very very contrasting to. Let's stick with the, the example of Iran. If you go to Iran, the the cities are particularly down in the south in the desert. They're sort of they're mud brick and they look very much like Middle Eastern or Near Eastern cities. So those look entirely different, but the interactions you have with people in each. Whether you're, you know, stood at a traffic light uh, talking to someone on a motorbike, or whether you're stood in the middle of a grassland talking to someone sat on a horse, the things you talk about are exactly the same, and they look different, but they they're interested in the same things by and large. Horsepower. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> in that instance, I suppose. Charlie, thanks so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I did get the impression that he is actually very similar to a lot of people in his desire to escape from the comfort and mundanity of everyday life. Yet there's something in him, this go button, that most people have locked away for their entire lives. And surprise, surprise, Charlie is actually off very soon on a seven-month expedition from the North Pole to Istanbul. You can follow him on followingtheline.com. That's it for this week. In the next episode, our guest has got some advice from Copenhagen on how to stay happy at the back end of winter when Christmas is but a distant memory and, let's face it, we've long abandoned our New Year's resolutions. You might have heard of it. Let's hooger. Thank you to Dervla Murphy and to Stephanie Allen from Elan Books for hooking us up. Thanks to Charlie Walker, to Jed Flood for the music, my boss George D for letting me make a podcast, my producer Alana Chance, plus the exec producers Ruth Barnes and Laura Sheeter from Chalk and Blade. 